Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste, the podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. So this is a podcast where we stir the pot and lick the spoon. Today we are going to be taking a break from our homebrew showcase characters and we're going to be talking about a little bit of a world building exercise. Today we're going to be discussing lost and fallen civilizations and how to incorporate them into your game world. So this is a less of a homebrew. I mean, it very much is a homebrew aspect, but this is also more leaning into world building, some DMing tips, things like that, that we also hope to bring to you. So this is a kind of a brainstorming session. There's going to be less tangibly built by the end of the session we expect, but hopefully offer you all some inspiration and some ideas to run with. This is going to be less of a, here's a thing for you to use and more of a, this is how you can build something a little more believable, a little more realistic. Right. So, I mean, if you have the characters built, you kind of have to have a place to drop them into. Think maybe like the old X-Men Danger Room or the Holodeck in Star Trek or the, uh, oh, I forget the name of the program in Assassin's Creed. Where the you Animus. Drop the, the Animus. There we go. Yes. It's kind of like that where now you get your character, so you need your place for your characters to play in. And... One thing that is pretty much a constant throughout just about any of your role-playing worlds is the concept of there was a civilization that came before, and this civilization has left behind these artifacts that you're going and finding, and somehow your current civilization is lesser than what came before and collapsed. You always have that, oh, there's this progenitor empire that collapsed, and now you're picking through the bones of their civilization. And even going beyond your D&D or your RPG realms and ideas, honestly, our own natural human history is filled with things like that. And that's kind of what we wanted to touch on because we're both history buffs. So, I mean, it kind of fell right into what we like to geek out on anyway. It's not like I have a bachelor's of history or anything. No, not at all. That, <laughs> that would be completely unexpected and strange. Yes, I know. How shocking. So if we're going to build this world or this forgotten empire or whatever, there are several questions you need to address first as you're sitting down trying to build this out. The primary question is how involved in discovery do you want your parties or your characters to be in? Are they the ones digging stuff up? Are they the archaeologists? Are they the adventuring party that found discovery, which would be a very exciting campaign? Or... Is it something more background lore, things that are going to affect your NPCs and how they react to your parties and characters and what kind of choices they're going to make? Right. And that question sort of falls hand in hand with the question of how long ago was this fall and what caused it? Because you're going to have a much different interaction with a kingdom that fell 40 years ago and there's still living memory of it versus the empire that fell 2,000 years ago, that what little bit remains of it is in mythology that may or may not be accurate. Exactly. And so if you wanted a more recent fall, something like, I don't know, Yugoslavia, or if you go a little bit older, like the old nation of Prague, or Prussia rather, which later became Germany. So these either crumbled or fell or melded into something new. Ian, as we were brainstorming, totally brushed up upon natural disaster, which my brain just like leapfrogged way over. Right, so things like earthquakes or volcanoes or tsunamis or even droughts and plagues and famines. Things that can displace, not just actually destroying the edifice of the civilization. And so this plays into, and like I said, it depends if your characters are trying to reclaim a homeland or trying to like find some artifacts. 
even when you're talking about a recently lost civilization or nation or tribe or whatever, this really plays into either with the way your party interacts with the remainder or those that are left behind. You got to think, what was the culture of that civilization like? Were they friendly with other nations? Were they hostile to other nations? Were there certain taboos? Like maybe all magic was a taboo. So if you had a mage trying to talk to one of the survivors, maybe they think their civilization was lost because of something the mages did. Or maybe maybe there was a rogue group of paladins, and so now they think all paladins are weirdly corrupt. So these are kind of ways you can build in. So you're not necessarily delving through dungeons and old relics of this civilization, but just dealing with the people from this nation that has been lost. Are they bitter about it? Are they sad? Are they angry? Are they hostile? Are they wanting to find or go back to their homeland? And so these are ways that you can actually build factions or parties or groups. And that can change things a lot, even within the character dynamics of your party. Especially a recently fallen kingdom or civilization, you're probably going to have a diaspora. People who managed to escape either refugees from war or from famine, or perhaps it was a civil war and they were the side that lost. And those are all, if you want to steal a page from history, because there's a bajillion of them, you could. And that can lead into so many rich stories to build off of. And then once you start getting a little bit further away from that, once you start getting into that second, third, fourth generation of diaspora, then you're going to start having factions within the diaspora. You're going to have this one group that wants to go and try and reclaim the homeland, while you have another group who wants to make the best of what they've got and integrate themselves into the society that has taken them in. Right. If you've got the time and you're able to build that kind of in-depth world building or faction building within your realm or your game, those lead to some really good memorable stories. It's not just a cookie cutter, so it becomes very poignant for your players. And then as you develop, you can actually build that towards how your players play the characters. And now the game becomes a lot more personal. You're a lot more invested in the story itself versus you all met at a tavern and the barkeeper gave you each 20 gold to find the lost chest and map, you know, so... Now you've got a civil war, you've got a story, you've got factions dividing. The story becomes a lot more in-depth. And the wonderful thing is, whenever you're first starting off, all you have to do is say, you have these two or three or four factions, here is what they stand for. And then whenever your party decides to look into one, then you start to flesh them out. But if they decide that they're just going to ignore that entirely... Well, then you didn't do a whole bunch of extra work that you didn't need to because you just established that these factions exist. This is the general framework of what they believe. And then if they come back to it, you have something to build off of. But if they just completely ignore it, you have this aspect of your world that explains something and you can draw from it if you need to. But you didn't throw a whole bunch of energy into building something that wasn't used. And that is probably one of the hardest lessons about world building is when you are world building, you are not writing a novel or a series of novels. And if you're a writer, you would be, but for the game, you're not. So you don't have to flesh everything out. You're much better just building the scaffolding or the framework to build and grow upon. Because I can't tell you how many times as a DM I've sat there and wrote 10, 15 pages of backstory for a character or for a town or a city or an event. And the players looked at it and said, 
yeah, we're going to the left instead. And completely like, just, okay, I'm going to wad that up and throw it away, and there it goes. <laughs> that is one of the hardest things to learn as a DM, is the proper level of preparation. How to prepare enough, but not too much. Now, one thing Ian does that makes his stories and his games very fun is, and he's mentioned it before, most of his games are within the same realm or universe, not necessarily within the same time frame, but so he's got a base story of this world he has built in his mind, and I'm sure he has much that's been written out. So even if he does take the time to write something out and he doesn't use it, he can always come back to it later or use it for a different game or a different session, and that's a really good thing. And it gives all of his stories a bit of continuity, which is really, really nice. I have not gotten to that level with my world building yet. I tend to do one-offs, so here's the thing I'm doing for now, and then if that doesn't get used, like I said, I tend to wad it up, throw it away, and I start from scratch, which takes a lot of effort on my part. And my different campaigns tend to be wildly different, where a lot of Ian's tend to be very cohesive. Well, I mean, I've also been building this world since I was about 15. So I've had this world coming together for more than half of my life at this point. And it has been just a bunch of little snippets here and there, and then I have to figure out how to make this one and that one connect somehow, because they are in a position where they're going to interact, and I have to figure out how they interact and what the story behind them is. That is a great way to do things. Something also that is, and I am a huge fan of this concept, and as you know, with COVID, we're doing a lot of home learning Fortunately, unfortunately, a lot of people are switching to homeschooling or they're doing the hybridized learning. These make great prompts for world building, for creative writing, for critical thinking. I honestly think tabletop gaming can go a long way in education. We brushed up on this before. Critical thinking, crisis resolution, problem solving, interpersonal communications. Tabletop gaming touches on all of these things, which is a wonderful, wonderful tool if we could get past the overall stigma, because again, you had the whole 80s thing with D&D and people think it's just for geeks. I would really like to see generalized tabletop gaming packaged in a way that it could be used in an educational setting. But world building is a great, wonderful critical writing, critical reasoning technique that you could, if you're looking for an idea for your students or your children, something they need to do, tell them to build a world, build a story about the world. Give them a picture and say, here's a picture, write me something about this and go. That is actually a really good thing to do, taking an image and extrapolating something from it. I do get to work at a museum, and one of the galleries we had, that was something that one of the ladies, and she lived back in the, the early 1900s, and that's what she did, is she took pictures from photographers that she liked, and she wound up doing like rugs and weaving and things like that, but she took the picture and based her image and off of that, and so she did these huge, not murals, but like quilts and these large textile art things based off of someone else's image, and she worked with them. So again, taking a piece of art or a piece of story or a piece of anything you like and building off of that is always a wonderful idea. But going through, there's just tons of ideas everywhere that we can use. The way cultures and civilizations change, throw in some family history. I mean, we all come from somewhere, so why not we have family history that came from a lost civilization or a country that kind of went defunct for one reason or another? Throw that in. Why not? Ultimately, at the end of the day, the games are supposed to be fun. Games are more fun if you can personally invest into them. So just throw your own history in there. If you have family history, why not work with it? Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're going for the diaspora route, because there are so many nationalities 
I mean, even in American culture, there are so many nationalities. They came here escaping something in their home country, and they still very much heavily identify as being of that country. You know, you have a big Somali population up around Minneapolis, St. Paul. You've got Iranian Americans. You've got Vietnamese Americans and Korean Americans. You've got the Irish with a potato family. You've Absolutely. got the Chinese coming for the railroads. You've got the Armenians who were wiped out by the Turks. You've got, you know, a large Jewish population that came, unfortunately, during the Holocaust. I'm not unfortunately that they came, but, you know, the unfortunate circumstance of the Holocaust. You've got people coming from the southern borders now because there's a lot of civil war and strife there. I mean, people come from everywhere. People don't leave home without a good reason, generally. So, yeah, take the time and explore your family background. You might find some really cool stories. So, let's go ahead and try and piece some stuff together. Just sort of give some ideas on timeline reason combinations. Let's build some fallen civilizations. Like you touched on originally, obviously a natural disaster. The earth opened up and swallowed your capital city. That sounds kind of far-fetched, but when you think about, what, five or six years ago, there was that massive earthquake in Haiti, and that leveled like 90% of the island. Is you know, a- if it wasn't for our modern technology we have now, they would really be starting from scratch almost, you know? So, yeah, there you go. Why not? It was a little longer ago than that. I was still in college when that happened. I think it was 2009. Was it that long ago? It really was. Time has a way of of slipping away from you. But you also have that same sort of thing in areas like Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nepal. That area along the Himalayas is very seismically active, and they get some really, really massive earthquakes out there sometimes. Earthquakes lead to fires. Fires lead eventually to mudslides. And so where your city, your city-state was, has now literally been wiped clean, you know, Earth has shook its grand etch-a-sketch. And again, for that region, they have the monsoons. So if an earthquake hits at the beginning of monsoon season, you're going to have an absolute disaster on your hands. So if we threw that into our city, so, you know, we had a city that's based off of a Himalaya culture, like we said, the the globe, the Earth, the world, shook its grand etch-a-sketch. We're starting from scratch now. So everything you had, all of your culture, All of your buildings, all of your statues, all of your art, all of your education, all of your knowledge you'd saved is now buried under rubble, and that rubble's buried under a good foot or two of mud. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to pick up what you have. Are you traders? Are you warriors? Are you military? Are you going to become bounty hunters or mercenaries? Are you going to become traveling sages and tutors, maybe? Or are you just going to hit the road until you can find some place where they don't chase you off? And so that's another option, too. As your NPCs or your party was dealing with this, these are things to work with. How are you going to relate to the people in the city-states or the countries or empires right next to yours? Yeah, because you know that if it is somebody who has some decent amount of military might, they're probably going to take advantage of the situation, especially if the region is resource-rich. They're going to take advantage of this unrest caused by this natural disaster to come in and cut out their own share, if not try to swallow it up whole cloth. Are there going to be freedom fighters? Are there people that are going to remember, hey, this was our home and this is our traditional land? Are they going to go with that or are they going to just try, like we were talking about earlier, are those the ones that kind of want to shrug off and kind of want to change with the times and move forward or do you want to hold on to your past? So another thing that you 
really going to want to look into is the timeline that you're looking at, how recently this has happened, because something that happened 50 years ago compared to something that happened 250 years ago compared to something that happened a thousand years ago, you're going to have very different reactions and relationships amongst those people and regarding what remains of that civilization at those different time frames. To a point, yes. One of the things we talked about, a really good example, and it's weird that this example works for almost any time frame you want to use, but you have the Palestine-Israeli conflict for the region. Israel was made a nation state in, I think it was 47, 48. 48, So we're about 70, 75 years ago. You can go back several thousand years before that, and you're dealing with where Judea became Palestine due to a Roman influence. Basically, there was a revolution. The Romans decided that they got tired of so much insurrection in the area, so they pushed everything out and changed the name to Palestine. At that point, they were literally trying to erase the name of Judea. And so that's another version of that. You could go back further, and if you wanted to start touching to almost mythological or legendary type cities, you have the old cities of Jerusalem under David, or you have Abram and the original Canaanites and all of that coming through. So that actually pops up in that region. You can cover a lot of these things at almost any time frame. Another mid-length kind of removal of a people, but yet still current. If you look in America, you have some of the issues with the Native American tribes. They're on reservations. Some of them are on reservations near their old territory like the Sioux. So what if you had a group of people that were removed and now you have a mage guild that found a ley line that's next to a sacred druid grove and they're wanting to dig up to find these magic crystals or this ley line or whatever. You could play that fairly similar to your pipelines or whatever that go through. You start building your conflict, your points of story, things like that tie in really well with the story. You could actually build from there very quickly. Another thing that you can do, you don't necessarily even have to have a fallen civilization. You don't have to have something where a nation existed and some calamity befell it and you're sifting through the pieces. You can have an instance of, I'm just going to call it cultural evolution, where the culture in and of itself has advanced to such a point throughout history that they don't have a concrete grasp of where they started from. A good example of this would be in England, the progression from Anglo-Saxon England up through to the British Empire. The British Empire is a vastly different creature from Anglo-Saxon England, but you end up having a very clear line running through from one to the other. And I really like this. And this is something that does happen a lot too. And going with the British and the English tradition, the whole British Isles has a lot of this kind of history. You have your Britons, B-R-I-T-O-N-S, you know, not, not like we say today, that were there during the Roman times. And then, you know, they wound up pushing the Romans out eventually around three or 400. The Anglo-Saxons came in, but throughout the islands, you also have, you know, you have some Danes, you've got the Picts, you've got the Gauls, you've got the Gales. And how those cultures meshed together definitely changed moving more towards the end of the Anglo-Saxon period. You've got your Normans and, and things like that. And so these things, like Ian said, maybe a calamity didn't fall, but you know what? Maybe your party's in a dungeon or finding an old map and they found an old treasure trove. And that's how we know a lot about the Anglo-Saxons today is we found some treasure troves. People were coming through or raided or they wanted to hide their shiny stuff. 
Uh, you've got the Sutton Hoo burial. That's a real big one. I get to study a lot because they had a lot of shiny jewelry. There's a couple other really famous treasure troves where people had pictures and paintings and jewelry and art that they buried to save, and we found them later. And we've got to learn a lot about how the people changed, how their ideas changed. That is a really good idea of changing the culture of society. And another good example of this sort of cultural or social evolution would be Rome, if you're going to go with a European example. You start off with the Etruscan city-states, or if you even want to go further back, they drew their mythological origins from the city of Troy. So from Troy or the Etruscan states all the way up through to the Byzantine Empire on a scale that covers almost 2,000 years. If you go to Troy, it's well over 2,000 years. But going from the Etruscan city-states, which I think was somewhere around 480 BC, was around where they were in their prime. I might be wrong. I'm not looking that up right now. But going from that to the Byzantine Empire fell in 1453, you've got that span of roughly 2,000 years. But the Etruscan city-states, this Bronze Age city-states compared to the Byzantine Empire. Those are two very vastly different entities, but there's that single direct line from one to the other. Right, and that's a beautiful thing, and that's one of the reasons why personally I love history. One of the grand twists of fate that I really enjoy, the Roman Empire, you know, drawing its start back from Troy, which was in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, didn't technically collapse until the fall of the Byzantine Empire, which was in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So, I mean, this whole civilization literally went full circle, which I think is really neat. You also, if you look at Eastern history, which I unfortunately need to study a lot more up on, but a lot of your Chinese dynasties and things like that, they also changed over time. There wasn't necessarily a large military overthrow or some sort of natural catastrophe, but they too draw their lines from ancient cities. And this led to this, led to this, led to this, and now we're here. And to draw a similar comparison, the, I believe it's pronounced Xia dynasty, X-I-A, in one of the anglicized spellings, the Xia dynasty is credited as being the first Chinese dynasty. But it's one of those where it's so far in the past. It started, I think the timeline that I saw had it covering roughly 2500 to 1690 BCE. Wow. Yeah, it's Chinese history is really long. It is, and they go back so, so far. If you look at European history, and then you take a gander over at what China's doing, what's happening over in East Asia with China and Korea. Kind of new. Yeah. I mean, they had steel and mathematics when we were still building mud huts and just figuring out how to smelt bronze. So yeah, but the point I was going to make was it happened so far in the past that modern archaeologists haven't found any concrete evidence, any physical evidence to actually support that this dynasty even existed. And that is something with a lot of the Eastern history is a lot of it is tied into legend and lore, which is great. Legends are wonderful, wonderful things. And most legends are tied to fact at some point and have been, it's like the telephone game just over 4,000 years. Now, it was long thought that, again, we talked about Rome and the Byzantine Empire being tied to Troy. It was long thought 
that the Aeneid was just, the Romans wanted something to kind of compare with the Greeks' Odyssey, and so Virgil threw something together. But in the past couple decades, we've actually found the city of Troy, and it's pretty close to where the Romans said it was supposed to be, and it was strangely wiped out by some sort of battle. And so a lot of those threads tend to carry through, so who's to say that legend can't be real? The best myths have their root in fact. Another one of those threads of an ancient city into a modern period, the ancient city of Ur, where Father Abram came from. We have found the city of Ur, which is pretty close to where the Empire of Babylon was, which is now modern-day Iraq and Syria. We have found these cities. We have found cuneiform tablets uh, mentioning things. So again, these legends do have a thread of truth. And the people and culture, the Iraqi people are not the Sumerians that they were 3,000 years ago. It's just things change over time, but they still have that historic thread that runs through their history from the past to modern day. And so let's say we're going to build ourselves a fallen kingdom in a D&D world for this first one. Let's just say that it fell 50 years ago. Okay. So it's still in living memory. There are still people alive who remember living in this kingdom. Okay. So let's build something out a little bit, trying to figure out how we would integrate that into a game. So we've established a timeline of 50 years. What's going to be our calamity? What's going to be the thing that brought it down? Again, a natural disaster is really easy. A military push of some sort is also very simple. A mix of the two, maybe an ecological disaster, something like the, you know, the Great Bronze Age collapse, where maybe they over-farmed the land and the soil just went kaput. Maybe the mages burned out the magic in the area. Yeah, I like the concept of a famine of some sort, because that would be something that would push a large chunk of a population out. Okay, so something like the American Dust Bowl happened, and now all of your crops have gone kaput. There's the mini ice age or the year without a summer where everything froze and nothing grew, so... Or you have the Irish potato famine, where this blight showed up, and within a couple of weeks, just about every potato in Ireland was rotten in the ground because they were all growing the same strain of potato, which is an unrelated, which is a key example on why you want biodiversity because there was a botanist who had warned them that there was this fungal blight that really liked this variety of potato and that the Irish should start planting additional varieties of potatoes because it was only a matter of time before this blight showed up and they didn't listen to him. And so when it showed up, you had a million people die of starvation and another million people leave Ireland because they couldn't find food anywhere. So if we're going to build this, we need to ask, is our party part of the displaced and those looking to find said nation, city, state, whatever? Or is this going to be a background foil to kind of push the party in different directions? Or it could be a setting. It could be they are a group of people, perhaps they've been sent into this area to try and reclaim it, to try and reestablish some sort of population here as sort of a vanguard to come in and secure an area, trailblazers, if you will. Okay, I would count that as like a foil or as background, the setting for the story. So yeah, okay. we, can, we can go with that. So if that's the case, where is our group from? Are they from nearby? Are they distant? Are they related to the people that left? 
Are they just hirelings from a nearby nation? How do we want to form that? I think that this would be the sort of thing where it would be a high-risk sort of deal. So they would be picking up whoever they could get. So you would probably have a mix. You would have people from neighboring kingdoms. You would have members of the diaspora. You would have people who are completely unconnected, who are only there for perhaps coin or for academic reasons. Researchers looking into what this calamity actually was. Okay, so you'd almost have something kind of like a modern UN UNICEF or like a, um, not a a Greenpeace, but... Kind of a French Foreign Legion sort of thing. Yeah, okay, I could go with that. And again, these are things that happen. So we're coming into this area, the land has largely been vacated. So I had thrown out the idea of a famine. So now that we have a relatively recently fallen kingdom that was subjected to a famine and a large portion of the population left, what caused the famine? I was just going to ask that. Was it natural? Was it engineered? Was it accidental? Was it intentional if it was engineered? Like I said, was this some sort of military attack? Was this an economic attack that somehow went sideways? Was it just a natural blight? I mean, it could have been a case of the kingdom ended up being too prosperous and was expanding and bringing products from their expansion back into the heartland. You ran into this whenever the Europeans started settling and colonizing the Americas with grapes. Because they came in and they found the wild grape that was eventually domesticated into the conquered grape. And when they sent it back to Europe, there was a mite that lived in it that was sort of a symbiotic, uh, not really symbiotic, it was benign relationship. It lived off of the grapes, but it wasn't really very detrimental. They got it back to Europe and it absolutely loved European grapes. And it, <laughs> and it wiped out entire vineyards of grapes. And there was a huge wine shortage for decades because it wiped out entire vineyards worth of grapes. There are entire cultivars that were completely lost to history because the mites destroyed all of the plants. Do you want to have a bunch of angry nobles that are ready to fight at the drop of a hat? Have a wine shortage. And that is the reason why there is such heavy restriction on grape trade and why you can't bring grape plants into Europe. It's based off of this 400-year-old experience where he had a mass kill-off of grapes in Europe. Now, I grew up in Central California, and even today, that's still a very important thing they do keep an eye on. So even in California, when you, you can go out of the state with fruit and produce, but if you come in from a neighboring state like from Oregon or Nevada or Arizona or anything like that, you cannot bring produce in. There's actually checkpoints and you have to declare if you're bringing in flowers, vegetables, any kind of farmer's market produce, you have to declare that. And they either tell you to eat it, dump it, or sometimes they'll inspect it and let it go through. But generally it's eat it or dump it. Because again, we're agricultural is such a huge part of the economy. Protecting it was very important. So talking about this blight, it could be a natural blight, something that we could build later on as a homebrew. That was one of the things that was less used in third edition that I absolutely love was a blighter class and basically think an anti-druid. It was a druid. They had druid spells, but they actually got their power and spells by destroying nature and by killing nature. So maybe this whole blight was made by a blighter. 
and he went loose on the city or something. It could be a way to work it, and that way you could have a big bad guy towards the end you could play with. There actually is an Unearthed Arcana Druid Circle right now that is sort of along those lines, and I can't remember what it is called. I don't know, but I kind of want to play it. (laughs) So let's go ahead and call this a natural light that caused crop failure, which resulted in famine. Okay. Or maybe even an insect infestation, something like, you know, how Asian stink bugs are a big thing in the States right now, and they are doing a whole lot of damage to especially fruit trees. Okay. And with something simple like an insect invasion, you can give that off early, and the cause of the insect invasion could still be natural, could be pushed, could be engineered. So that still gives us some option to see how the players are going to play the story and work with it. So yeah, so we're in here. We're going to check out this land that's largely been overwhelmed by a bunch of insects or locusts or whatever which even a giant locust worm descending and just eating everything that's a perfectly reasonable thing to happen as well that's actually been happening fairly recently in africa if i'm remembering the story correctly they had a locust swarm come through early and so the next hatching was projected to happen right about the time when the harvest is supposed to happen and so they were getting really, really nervous about it, and they were trying to implement a whole lot of measures to try and limit that. But you can only do so much, especially in the regions of sub-Saharan Africa where this is happening. So we'll have our party go in, and at what point, what are they going to be doing there? Are they there for research? Are they there to loot and scoop? You know, are they going to find maybe there was some old treaties perhaps to find, maybe old maps to treasure, maybe there are some cultural significant objects you're looking for. So as people have vacated this area for 50 to 70 years as we talked, obviously wildlife's going to move in. So your low level, your early level is probably going to be dealing with wildlife or footpaths of certain sorts, trying to deal with that. You're probably going to have a certain amount of banditry, especially around the perimeter of, exactly, of yeah. where, where this nation used to be. Because once you get to the perimeter, they have easy access into the quote-unquote civilized areas, but the authorities may be hesitant to pursue them that far, depending on whether or not there is still a government in absentia that is trying to assert its control over this geographic area. Right. Is there a quarantine nearby? Have other nearby nations kind of locked off their borders? That's an option. As we talked about, has someone decided that there's no one here, so now I'm moving in? Sure, there's no food, but you know what? Those mines... Those mines are still producing some nice ore if you want to send someone in to dig for it. So who's to say, I elect that it's mine now. Right, and if it's profitable enough, then it makes it feasible to cart food in. And that would lead to more banditry as well, because people are going to want to raid the supply lines. Right, because especially since you'd only have to be worried about feeding the population directly involved with extracting this resource. And even from that, taking this thread, one, we should name the mine, the not yours, mine. Um, <laughs> just because that, if I ever have a mine, that's what I'm naming it. But where are the miners coming from? Maybe you have a nefarious neighboring nation that knew those mines were there. There's a bunch of refugees, so let's round up the refugees. We're helping them out and sending them home, and now they've got forced labor and they have labor camps. Are you there to rescue them? Are you there to promote? Which I would hope not, but if you're running an evil campaign, that's an option. So now you've got 
interactions with people. Are they going to want to tell you where these mines are because now they're secret? Yeah, sure, they're digging here, but our family had a mine over here that we just found. Are you going to want to share that information? And you could actually have it be more of a benevolent sort of thing where they can be providing the resources necessary for these people to move in and extract this resource for a cut. Right, and so they can rebuild. It's kind of like a a work study or a self-funded nation building. So it's like, we will ensure that the food shipments keep coming as long as you agree to pay for these food shipments at a slightly inflated price. That could be something that would very easily happen. And at that point, are they being fair? Are they not? That's a great foil to start a story, run a campaign. So yeah, that works out really, really well as well. And maybe you get so far down in the mine, maybe everybody likes this deal. They're digging so much of whatever, or maybe they're digging up mithril or something, and they're selling it off so they can rebuild their city center, their capital city. They get so far down the mine, and now they find something down there that doesn't like the fact they're digging in their mind now and so now maybe there's drow or maybe there's some sort of subterranean creature down there and again these lead to further encounters and story building Swerf Neblin. say again Swerf Neblin. yes i love me some Swerf Neblin. <laughs> just fun to say really. it is so much fun to say but deep gnomes yeah. are always fun so we've got this thing we've got our group going back we found that they have established some sort of deal or exchange with a neighboring city or council. They've got this mine running. So again, now there's cultural issues. Are there city treasures to be found? Who would know about such things? Are you a member or shared lineage or heritage of someone that'd be local? Would they talk to you? Would they not want to talk to you? Why would they want to share that information? What would they get in exchange? Maybe they need more supplies from somewhere else. So now are you going to be kind of on a run and fetch type mission or an escort type mission? thing that i would suggest is it's been 50 years so perhaps the locals are going to ask you to help clear the area of hostile wildlife so that they can start to cultivate it again yeah that kind of like what i was leading in with the uh, rebuilding of a town center with the mine maybe you do have to clear an area maybe you do need to find yeah we've got a bunch of ore but all the trees are gone so now you've got to find a wood source or a stone source or something like that to rebuild I'm, maybe I'm, you got to find some priest to do a blessing to bless the center of the city or the capital for whatever reason and so now you've got to find a specific religious leader or like an adept for a god that maybe is harder to find now because that religion is waning Right. But to take another angle on it, if this mining community is here and is operating on the understanding that they're buying these resources from this other kingdom, and this other kingdom is providing a certain amount of security to the trade lines in return for them buying this food, if they are getting you to start clearing the area so that they can start cultivating it again, then that other kingdom is going to not be real happy about that because if they start cultivating locally, there won't be a need for them to buy the food in and that will end up reducing their connections to the resource. Right. So now you've got, you know, are you going to have vandals or saboteurs coming in trying to burn crops? You're going to have enforcers coming in off of the other side from this other kingdom that's providing the food you're going to have enforcers coming in saying hey this isn't part of the deal and that's what i'm saying is once you have those crops and orchards or whatever established are they going to come in and try to tear them up burn them out that kind of thing as well they're probably going to send people in before that even happens to keep that from happening 
Potentially, it depends on how you wanted to play the story. But yeah, I mean, that could also be another foil or another point of conflict that needs to be resolved. So yeah, right now we've got, I could see at least five to ten levels of just coming in, discovering, working things out with various dungeons, going through the mines, role play, city building, diplomacy issues that we've got off of this. I think just this idea that we've got started has got a lot of potential. It could be a lot of fun to work with. Oh yeah, that sounds like fun. It does. But the point of this exercise was not to really thoroughly flesh out anything. So I think that is actually a pretty good place to leave this one. Yeah, I mean, and again, if you guys want to run with this, we'll try to post our stuff up. Again, check our Instagram out, our Facebook, our Twitter. We're going to try to share as much of these ideas that we come up with. So if you need a framework for a scenario, we'll try to name this thing and throw it up and run with it. Tell us your stories. Tell us how it goes. You know, we'd love to hear your stories. Tell us what works, what doesn't work. Maybe we can improve things. Maybe we'll revisit our homebrews and distill them, perhaps. Make another homebrew off a homebrew. Yeah, I'm really wanting eventually to do a, okay, so you have a concept for a city, let's flesh it out. So this could be something great for a later episode where we have, okay, here we have our little frontier town, let's flesh it out. Yeah, I'm really liking where this is standing right now. This sounds like a whole lot of fun. I would play in this game. Yeah, I would too. So let's back off away from this a little bit and go for something a little different. Let's go for something in the, let's say, three to eight hundred year range something that has clearly fallen and isn't getting up this one tends to be easier in my mind this i think you run into your more classic dungeons you're exploring a something and then you find an old temple you find an old map that leads to a treasure you find overgrown ruins in the forest that just happens to look like a road leading to a building and then there you go This 200-year-old oak tree blows over in the storm, and when it rips up, it opens up the entryway to this subterranean cellar. And so, again, these tend to be real easy. So as far as building a dungeon or building, you know, something for your characters to go through, I mean, they're pretty much, here's your story ready to go. You get into some conflict as maybe territorial borders have changed. So what if there's a vast treasure trove in this underground dungeon? As you go in, you dig up a little bit and you realize there's more and you go down and there's even more and there's even more. So who actually owns the ruins? 50 years ago, the border was 200 miles one way, then it shifted and then it shifted again. So you could have some conflict that way. Is it one of those like we talked about with the Britons and the Anglo-Saxons and now they're British? So, well, these are obviously Anglo-Saxon ruins, but wait, they're over the Scottish line now. So obviously the Scots own it. So you could go back and forth with that in different ways, I guess. Another thing you can go is if you're in one of these old ancient cities or lost civs, maybe you find something forbidden. Maybe you find like an old altar to Tiamat. Maybe you find some forbidden magic or maybe you find out that the line of the current king he was a bastard somehow and so he's not legitimate and so now you've got this family royal secret that you've got to either hide or uncover or whatever you want to do or blackmail depending on how you want to play your characters and your parties or even you find this ruin that has artifacts and knowledge pertaining to the ruined kingdom that used to stand on this land before a military conquest and the conquerors went through pretty extensive lengths to wipe out all traces of the people that they conquered. And then you find this cache of information about the people that they conquered. And now the people in power really want to keep their secret. And even depending on how long ago it was, it may just be an issue of this is something that scholars really want to get a hold of. 
Oh, absolutely. And this is where you kind of get into your whole Indiana Jones thing. And again, when you think of your RPGs and you think of your tabletop games, unless you're doing like a modern cyberpunk or something, this time frame, this four to twelve hundred years ago type thing is really the time frame that people have in mind. So these are tend to be the easier ones to kind of world build because it's what people are most familiar with. And what you can have for this really runs the gamut. You can have civilizations that you have huge amounts of information on, and you can have civilizations that basically nothing exists anymore, all within that same time period. And that time period is also really good for making sure that you actually still have surviving artifacts. Because once you get past you know, a thousand years or so, it really is very difficult to find surviving artifacts of that culture. Unless they're like super magical, made of dragon bone and, you know, that kind of thing. But yeah, exactly. So any kind of survivability of that culture is going to be a challenge. I should have specified mundane, mun- <laughs> mundane, mundane artifacts. artifacts. Yeah. No, <laughs> not magical things, because things that are enchanted in these games tend to hold up a whole lot longer. And now, with this kind of time frame, the one thing you can do, which will also lead into our next time frame, but a bit of a curveball you can throw, and this would require a large amount of homebrewing and a large amount of world building. But some of my favorite short stories or some of my favorite old sci-fis where you live and everything seems to be in, you know, a primitive time frame, medieval, early Native America, Stone Age, Bronze Age, and you get used to that concept until... Later on in the story, you find out that it's actually far in the future and there was an advanced civilization or several advanced civilizations that had fallen or had destroyed themselves in one form or another. And now they're discovering these technological relics. They're relics because they're ancient, but the technology is so far advanced of anything that would be current. And again, those are the kind old kind of sci-fi stories I grew up with and I really enjoy. And that's the sort of thing that you really get a lot of, especially in Dungeons and Dragons, is you're finding all of these artifacts of these old, sometimes forgotten civilizations that have created these magical items that are so much grander than what is being made currently. Another game or another system that was really good with this was Elder Scrolls. And you have you know, like your Deomer. I can never Dwemer. say that right. You know, they're all of their, their dwarf technology. You don't see a whole lot of dwarves running around, but you find their old ruins. And when you go into those dungeons or into those caves, the stuff they had in there was obviously, you know, it's all steampunk and everything, but it was obviously far more advanced. It's really kind of cool. Those are some of my favorite little areas to run through. Yeah, the Dwemer and the Aliads, the precursor elves that were a big part of oblivion and so again then those are ways and something like that a lot more world building but you can do so much with it the game is as in-depth or as intricate as you want it to be one of the statements i use for talking about talks and things like that and D is another great example of that it's like walking up to a buffet you can walk up to a buffet and you can see ready-made meals or you can look at it and see ingredients to make something even bigger or better. You just see the pieces laying around and start assembling how you want them. So let's build a little something here. Okay. Let's just, we'll throw out the arbitrary number of 500. So 500 years. So and we're looking at like two solid dwarf generations. Yeah. Elves are going to be about the only ones who would have a living memory of this place. And they would be old elves. Only the oldest elves, yeah. And I'd like to explore the concept, something we haven't really talked about here, of uh, societal collapse. An empire that overreached its means and internal strife 
civil war breaks out, regional uprisings, and it fractures and falls apart into warring individual little enclaves. Okay, so something like this would be very much like the end of the Western Roman Empire, where it was so big they couldn't manage it that the administration just didn't work correctly. And so it did break up into a bunch of little nations and little pieces. The invading Germanic tribes certainly didn't help anything. Yeah, but I mean, honestly, those Germanic tribes coming in was part of that breakdown because those Germanic tribes wanted their own territory and their own land. The Goths, they sacked Rome really to make a point because they were wanting to be Roman. And Rome just steadfastly said, no, you're Goths, we're not going to let you be Roman. And they said, but we can stick your nose in the dirt if we have to. And so they did, which is kind of one of those weird things, but that's a whole different <laughs> a side of history. <laughs> yeah. Something like this I could see, though, is if your party had found, uh, you know, again, using the old trope of you found a map to something, or maybe a scholar knew about something, maybe something needs to be assembled. There's pieces of a relic or an artifact. But because this empire was so expansive, now you've got to cross current borders to find each individual piece. And then again, you have the conflict of once it's all assembled of who does it actually belong to. And perhaps these were symbols of office held by the various regional governors and so each of the regional capitals ended up becoming a national capital whenever everything broke down and so you're having to go capital to capital to find these things and most of them are still being held by heads of state right and so now what are you going to do to trade beg or steal for these you know whatever they may be so this final artifact obviously could be like some sort of giant construct golem control. It could be something defensive. Maybe each piece has a piece to something bigger. So now you have, you know, the map to the ultimate treasure type thing. Or it could be something, going back to the Elder Scrolls, it could be something like the Crown of Berenziah, where it's 30 gems that have been popped out and spread all over. And say the last emperor's crown was broken up into pieces as part of a armistice ceremony. The last emperor's crown was broken up into pieces and a fragment of the crown went to each of the individual governors. And you're trying to reconstruct the crown because someone who is a direct descendant of that imperial line wants to make the political move to try and reunite the empire. And so they have to have all of the pieces to reconstruct the crown to prove their legitimacy. And this, again, would make for a great story. So now you've got however many nations over this area, you can cover a huge, huge amount of geography. Obviously, some people might want to maybe, yeah, we'll go ahead and rejoin this thing. We can reconfederate or reunify this nation and our lot in life will be better. Obviously, the stronger nations aren't going to want to because they're going to lose position. So now, again, you've got your diplomacy going back and forth. What gives great, 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 great grandson or granddaughter or whoever the right? Maybe I have a better claim to the crown and the throne, so I'm going to start digging through my family tree. So maybe that's my crown, or maybe I have more pieces than you do, and since I have three pieces and anybody else has only one or two, and that possession's would, nine-tenths. Position is nine-tenths of the law, but and then what you end up with is they're trying to keep it quiet that they're doing this because if it gets out that they are trying to do this then you're going to end up having the other heads of state collaborating with one another forming alliances against you to prevent I mean, you from getting this but on the other side you're going to have 
other states who, whenever they catch wind of it, are going to want to ally with you if you are in a position of strength at that point, coming to you, willingly giving you their fragment to join your alliance on their terms. And I like the idea of trying to keep it down low too. So you go to a regent or you go to a king or a minister or whatever, and I need the gem or the fragment of whatever that that's the symbol of your, but I can't really tell you why I want it, or you have to make up some sort of story of why they should get. So, I mean, that really would come into some really good role play, I think. I foresee a huge amount of cloak and dagger involved in this. There will be a lot of heists. Yes, this would be uh, a lot of rogues, a lot of bards, probably, you know, some wizards and stuff. But yeah, this would be a fun sneaky sneak, a, a Game of Thrones type world, I think. And you would end up, you'd need an artificer because you would need to be able to create a counterfeit so that you can replace the actual one with a counterfeit and do the heist so that they don't realize that it's been swapped. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I really like that idea. Why aren't we playing this? <laughs> <laughs> Because of COVID. Oh, that's right. Anybody who figures out how to cast Cure Disease, we really need that spell right now. Yeah, Greater restoration for everyone. Or even if we have someone with access to ninth level spells, go ahead and cast Wish. Say, I wish that COVID-19 no longer exists. No Terrascues, please. Tarask. Tarask? Yes. Uh, Again, it's one of those words I've only read. Tarask. Okay, yes. No Tarasks, please. He's French. Oh. Oh. I think that's pretty good for our mid-distance timeline. Right. So let's go one more, even further in the Wayback Machine, and talk about something that is so far removed from current culture as to be considered mythical. Something that doesn't really have much of an analog in the world anymore. There's very little physical evidence that it ever existed. There's almost no records of it having existed. Yeah, at this point, you're kind of one of your sleeping prophet, Edgar Casey. Yeah, we're just going to go ahead and nudge him and have him tell us some stuff about Atlantis, the Forbidden City in China. You had mentioned El Dorado, which is another great one. Yeah, El Dorado, Atlantis. Uh, Shangri-La. Shangri-La. Shangri-La is a good one. These cities that, according to legend, existed, but they're not entirely sure where. I kind of think of the statement in Wheel of Time where it talks about the wheel turning and says, you know, memory became legend, legend became myth, and by the time the age of myth came again, even those names have been forgotten. I'm paraphrasing, but... And those are going to be a lot harder to do. This is going to be something found by a college of lore from the bards or maybe a college of mages and wizards in some sort of old tome. Maybe a dragon pops up and says, hey, where's my old home? Divination wizards. Yeah, divination wizards, yeah. Stuff like augury and contact other plane. They find this oddly intact thing that rises up out of a swamp after an earthquake. And they have no idea where this came from or who it was connected to. And so they are starting to go through and try and figure that out. You woke up old Sleepy Lich, who happened to be the ruler of said kingdom. And now he's reclaiming his birthright, as it were. His undead birthright? Rebirthright? I don't know how you want to phrase that. His holdings. Yes. (laughs) Holdings and trust. So yeah, and again, this one is going to take a lot more world building to do. This is definitely something that is going to be more flavor in the background than it is going to be something that you interact with regularly. Yeah, this one would be a really hard one to put together. But if you could pull it off correctly, it could be really, really interesting to do. This is going to be your, okay, we need this thing. 
it's in the ruins of this ancient temple. You go out there and get it and bring it back. But first you have to find the temple. And so that would be, you know, your first 10, 15 levels trying to even figure out where to start. I think that would just be a higher level story arc. You just wait until you have some of that more powerful divination magic where you can figure out where something is through scrying and asking extraplanar entities and things of that nature. I could see that depending on, and again, this is something that would take an incredible amount of world building, but if throughout a campaign or something like that, if you could somehow put hints in stories or information that you gave your party and characters throughout as they played and kind of hinted at something and slowly build up those clues as they start to point, this would be something extremely intricate to do correctly. But if you could do it correctly, it would be absolutely astounding. And one way that you could really integrate that, this is a little bit cliched, but time shifts. Have the party run into some pocket of time dilation or what have you. Some sort of effect that sends them back in time to this civilization. And that's how they figure out where it is. Because they go to there, back whenever people were still living there. And then they do a couple of sessions in there, and then they figure out a way to get shunted back. That would probably involve dragons of of several sorts, but again, that is a trope that has been used, and it does work. Again, ways we could tie things through, we talked about those old histories where you have that golden thread of history that kind of runs through. Ian was talking about the city of El Dorado. Getting to grow up in Central California in school, we did get to learn some Mesoamerican lore. One of the stories I always liked is that they said as Cortez came, he started looking for a lot of the gold and was demanding more and more. That where Mexico City now is basically built over swamp and they grew more or less like floating gardens. And when they knew Cortez was coming for their gold, they dumped all of this gold into the swamp and pushed the paddocks over everything to hide it. Which is kind of a cool thing, and it leads a bit into El Dorado. But what's really neat is in the 90s and the 80s, there were some really severe earthquakes that struck Mexico City. And when they did geologic surveys, they found Mexico City doesn't have really much of a firm foundation to it. It's kind of built Built on on a a giant Yeah, exactly. And so there's this golden thread of history, like I said, that kind of runs through. You could even take some of your, your lost civilization tropes or stories that we pushed before and eventually tie it into this larger mythic city. So maybe you start off trying to rebuild that city with the mine that had been hit by a plague. And through that, you found out about these artifacts that were part of the local region. Start assembling those together. When you get that final artifact reassembled, notice that somehow some clue left you that it was actually from an even older civilization or there was some mythos behind that. And now you've got that from the dawn of time to current day thread that runs through your whole story. That would actually be a whole lot of fun to try and put together. That would be a great final arc to a 1-20 to campaign. If I could write that down correctly, I would probably try to say that off to wizards and say, hey, what do you think? (laughs) Because, I mean, that would be an amazing... I think that could be an amazing story if done correctly. And we need bards and storytellers far better than myself to put all those pieces together. So another thing that you could do with this is you could even go into this where the culture at present doesn't know about it. They know the myth that there was something and then there's someone who is basically tasking the party to find the truth of it. So there is this myth of this city out in the jungle that used to exist long, long time ago. We want you to try and find it. 
Crichton kind of brushed up on that in his book Congo, and ever since I've read that book. But that was the whole thing where they found the lost civilization where they had a bunch of diamonds and they used those for some sort of laser gun or something like that. Like I said, it's forever. But that was the whole thing as they were looking for that kind of lost civilization. You kind of get that feel in some of the more modern versions of Kipling's Jungle Book, where because there were a lot of old temples and stuff in the Burmese jungle and whatnot, talking about India and Malaysia and those areas. Yeah, here's the land of rubies and diamonds. Does it exist? I'll give you a shiny bag of gold if it does. And that is, I think, I haven't actually gotten around to reading all the way through the module yet, but I think that's kind of how the Tomb of Annihilation module runs. It's in the jungles of Cholt, and I think it involves old Yonti City. Oh, fun. Yontis don't get enough play. And then you have the actual Tomb of Annihilation is an old... I'm pretty sure it is a revamp of an old AD&D module. Gotcha. Because they brought the Lich back for that. The only reason I know that I'm pretty sure it's an AD&D module is because it's referenced in the novel Ready Player One. That was actually, that's supposed to be a really good book. People really it enjoyed is. the movie. I, I, I really enjoyed it. it. But that's kind of the feel that I've gotten reading into the Tomb of Annihilation module is that's sort of the feel is you're going into the jungle and you're piecing together the various bits of this old civilization that's been lost and overgrown in the jungle. There's your forgotten civilization right there. It's all second edition stuff. All right. Well, I think that's going to pretty much do it for us for this batch. Yeah, for this batch, I think next week we're going to go back to our character building. Which character did we decide to try to flesh out next? I think we're going to try the Kobold Rogue next. Excellent. Very, very excited to play with him. I love Kobolds, and spoiler alert, I think that Wizards did him dirty. Dirtier than they did the Orcs. That's a hard bar to pass. That is my statement. I am biased because I love Kobolds, and I'm, 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 I am willing to posit arguments to support my statement. I personally just like tinkering with rogues. I think rogues have such a wide ability to use, and I think they get pigeonholed so easily. So it'll be really fun to kind of tinker with them a bit. So next week, join us. We'll start looking at kobolds, and we'll go ground there like we did with our orc friend. Again, if you like some of the ideas that we had posted or posited up today, we do plan to post those online. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, under Common Taste. Find us, join us, say hello. Use some of our ideas if you want. Tell us how they run. Tell us what you think of them. And tell us if you have something that you want us to try and flesh out for you. And if we like it, we'll do a show on it. Yeah, I mean, that would be great. Again, we were hoping for some interaction with our listeners. So, yeah, we would love to take your ideas and kind of build them up, beef them up. And then here's what we got. We'll hand them back to you and see what you can do with them. Thank you for joining us for the Undercommon Taste podcast. If you enjoyed it, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or ideas, please feel free to send them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can also find us on Twitter under the handle at UCT Homebrew and on Instagram and Facebook under Undercommon Taste. Our theme music is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find Mary online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash Dr. Mary C. Crowell. Again, thank you for joining us, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.